The Insurance and Injury Law Show, Savan's number anytime, 416-216-5910, and email is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. We'll get to a few emails scattered throughout the show today, but we always start, uh, my friend, we'll get to the injury calculator in just a bit as well, but it's a week that was. you got a couple cases to, uh, to talk about. Absolutely, John. Again, extremely busy week. I know I said every week, and every week I think I'm going to have some <laughs> breathing room. No. Uh, but no, because of, of, of the show and because of people uh, listening, uh, really... Across Ontario, believe it or not, one person tells the next and their family members, their friends, and people just call me with these kinds of questions about anything to do with personal injury, uh, insurance disputes, whether it's house insurance, etc. So let me go through two interesting cases that I had been dealing with this past week. And again, we're, we're describing these cases and talking about them because there are lessons to be learned from those cases. So the first one is a, uh, a car accident. And we've been hearing about a lot of car accidents, unfortunately, a lot of uh, very serious ones, which we'll get into a little bit later. This one involved a 27-year-old woman in a high-speed car accident uh, that happened a while back. Uh, She's a nurse, a full-time nurse, or she was a full-time nurse, and she suffered a concussion and various other injuries to her body. She has major issues with concentration, memory, and focus, uh, which often are symptoms of concussion. And oftentimes with concussion-type injuries, people recover and they can recover 100%. Unfortunately, sometimes the symptoms continue, even though they're being treated and, and you know, they keep getting uh, um, help. Unfortunately, some of these symptoms end up being chronic and long term. Anyways, with this lady, again, 27 years old, she never went back to work full time after this accident. And she called because her father, who had been listening to the show several times, insisted for a few weeks now that she give me a call. But here's the problem, you know. The, the accident was not her fault. This is, this is a major, major case. Clearly, the impact is significant, but this happened almost four years ago. She's out of time to start a claim mm-hmm. against the driver that caused the accident. I mean, John, when I finished speaking with her, I can tell you that uh, it, my assessment, just a rough assessment, is that this would have been a six, if not a seven-figure oh case. Oh, my gosh. I mean, this lady is injured for life. I mean, for four years now, almost four years, she's having these cognitive type issues that are not going away. She can't go back to her nursing profession full time. She's only 27 years old. She's not 64. She's a kid. kid. And so this is such a major case, but she she lost out on this. She cannot start a claim. She'll start a claim. I can guarantee you that the insurance company for the other driver will immediately move with a motion to, to, to strike her claim, to dismiss her claim. And, and, you know, why did she not pursue it until now? And again, her father told her to get legal advice even after the car accident. She believed that she was going to get better. She, she didn't want to be one of those people, quote unquote. Right. And I get that a lot. I, I hear that. And I understand people when they tell me, listen, I don't want to be one of those systems, uh, systems, one of those victims or one of those people that, uh, you know, everyone screams that, you know, because of you, our insurance rates are going up. But we're dealing with a major injury. We're talking about permanent impact on her life. And now she is barred from starting a claim for that compensation that she would have been des- that she would have deserved had she started the claim. So, a lesson to everyone out there: there is a two-year limitation period in these kinds of cases, in personal injury cases in Ontario. There are some exceptions. Yes, there are. There's going to be lawyers and paralegals emailing me. They always do. Yes, there are exceptions, but you don't want to be one of those people who, after the fact, after the expiration of the two-year limitation period, tries to figure out if they fit into one of those exceptions. Don't be one of those uh, people who realizes only after the fact that you could have had a significant claim that would have uh, uh, helped you uh, um, for life, really, with treatments, with your family, etc. So very, very important people to understand. Two-year limitation period, don't wait. Get the legal advice, at least so you understand what your options are. And your next one. 
The next one is uh, something that we've been talking about for a long time as well. It's long-term disability. And, and this is a very, very interesting situation that happened because um, we've been talking about appeals uh, for as long as I can remember, John. And this is, uh, this is a textbook case that I've been warning people against. So, so I have a, a lady who had called me, again, after listening to the show, this was a few months back, and she was cut off long-term disability at the uh, two-year mark. Okay, the insurance company said, uh, we don't have sufficient medical documentation uh, to, to show that you are totally disabled under the policy. Okay, so she called us. And of course, when the insurance company sends you that letter or that email or the adjuster calls you, tells you, you know, time's up, we don't have any more documentation or sufficient documentation to continue with your payments, they oftentimes, uh, in fact, most times, invite you to appeal that decision. You know, if you have more medical documents, give those to us, we'll reassess. Mm -hmm. And of course, what have I been saying all along? I said, listen, you're appealing essentially to the same people who cut you off, okay? (laughs) Yeah, it it, it may be Jane and not Joe, but they're probably sharing a cubicle. And as far as I'm concerned, most of these appeals are useless. They just drag the process, drag the time, and wear people down. So what happened here? We we went through a full intake. I explained to her uh, the options that she has. And I explained to her that, that, you know, really her best option right now is to let me start a claim against the insurer. Within a few weeks to a few months, we're going to be able to resolve the claim. So she came back about a week later and said, you know, I've thought a lot about this. I've reread the letter that they sent me. And I just, I have one question for you. If I choose the appeal route, if I appeal them, does that foreclose my right if they deny my appeal to go with you? to make a claim. Right, right, right. And I said, no, absolutely not. You're free to go ahead and appeal. I mean, if that's what you're feeling comfortable with, I'm not going to pressure you. As long as I've given you all your options, as long as you understand uh, what what um, uh, options are available to you, that's it. You know, you understand what can happen if you appeal or if you don't appeal or if you start a claim, you don't start a claim. So she says, okay, thank you very much. I'm going to try and appeal. And I said, absolutely. Just, you know, let me know what happens out of curiosity. You'll be back. I, I, well, yeah, but you know what, John? I, I honestly, I really hoped, I really hoped that, that you know, e- even though if she's back with me, yes, I gain a client. Mm-hmm. But but I, I don't like to see people going through this process. Really, this is, when you come to me, it's because, you know, you're at your wit's end and you need the, the legal help and the legal advice. So uh, I haven't heard anything. No. And then about a week ago, um, I, I get an email from her saying, uh, okay, well, I'd like to see a retainer agreement because I just got denied. Right. I think it was about a month and a half after uh, she had uh, appealed. And she gave them the new medical documentation, mm-hmm. new reports from her physicians. And again, I'm not saying that in every case you're going to get denied. But in the majority of cases, for as long as I can remember, having assisted people with these kinds of claims, insurance companies... Uh, they, they, they don't go back on their word, okay? And for a variety of reasons, and I, I have some idea why they do that or why they don't uh, do it. Occasionally, occasionally, they will, if there is an interjection by a, in a disability lawyer, occasionally uh, they may either reverse their position or at least say, okay, you know what? We're not going to cut you off right now, subject to you providing us with further medical documents, but it's usually when I get involved. And this actually also happened this past week with a client. So she's actually not cut off this other one. We'll take a uh, quick break. The number 416-216-5910 and help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Savannah mentioned car accidents off the top. We'll get to that and give you some details on the injury calculator as well. This is the Insurance and Injury Law Show. Talk Radio AM 640. 
The Insurance and Injury Law Show to get a hold of Savan anytime. This number is uh, it's not a you know it's not here at the station. It's right on his hip. It's four one six two one six fifty nine ten and help at the insurance lawyer.ca. Let's get into injurycalculator.ca. Give me some details. All right. So this is an online tool that's free, that's very easy to use. It's anonymous. That's very important. And what it is is uh, if you go to that website, if you've been injured, whether it's a car accident, a slip and fall, anything where someone else was at fault for your injury, Mm -hmm. you go on this online website and you input a few pieces of information. And those are the the date of the incident, where it happened, like, you know, the city, your age, the type of injury that you suffered, the severity of the injury. And these are all drop down menus, uh, by the way, John. And what it does is it then takes all these variables and it goes back into its database that we had, that my team and I had put together and uh, it spits out uh, a a range of uh, compensation that you may be looking at if you started a claim for that compensation. But it's important to note, and you've raised that before in other shows, that this deals only with pain and suffering. So if you break your leg uh, as a result of uh, falling on black ice, and the landlord was at fault because they were not maintaining the uh, the driveway or the parking lot properly. The, the the amount of money that the calculator provides you, the range that it provides you, is typically what you could expect to get. And and what is that based on? It's based on a compilation of a lot of cases from across Canada. Mm-hmm. It's not just me and my team saying, oh, you know what, you know, you broke your pinky, you're entitled to a million bucks, like I seen on some yellow pages uh, right, uh, right. advertisements. No. This is my team and I going through a lot of case law throughout uh, Canada for the last, I don't know, few decades and trying to figure out these ranges. What what could you potentially be looking at if your claim went all the way to court? Of course, almost none of these cases ever go to court. But for our purposes, we, we wanted to figure out, well, what are the ranges? What is somebody looking at? And it's a natural question, by the way. Somebody calls me up after they've been injured. It's not that they're calling me up because uh, they're preoccupied with money, but they need to understand what it is that I can provide them. Mm-hmm. And that's not, not just me. It's, it's really any lawyer, right, that deals with insurance and disability and injuries. So what I can do is I can tell you, look, your case is specific, every case is specific, but but we can have this uh, database uh, that we've created that provides you some kind of a range, something that you can look at to have an idea of how much compensation you could potentially be entitled to. Injurycalculator.ca. So uh, people might go through the exercise, uh, whether they're injured or not, maybe just for curiosity, and they might be thinking this is the be-all to end-all to their payment. But that's, like you said, just one component. What else is there? You're right. It's just one component. And it's important to understand that your pain and suffering is one thing. But what if you can't go back to work? What if you can go back to work, but you can't do the overtime hours you were able to do before the accident? What if, John, you had two jobs, one full-time, one part-time? I have a lot of those kinds of clients. And, you know, they're not trying to uh, get, get you know, s- something from the system uh, and, and, you know, retire off of the settlement. No, they go back to their full-time job, but, but because of the injuries and the chronicity of their symptoms, they can't do the part-time job. Mm-hmm. So, again, you can have a claim where the pain and suffering component perhaps is worth, I don't know, dollars $10,000, $50,000, right? But your income loss could be in the hundreds of thousands right. of dollars. And again, income loss is just one other variable. What about if you need somebody to help you with your household chores? Perhaps now because of your injuries, you can't shovel the snow. You got to hire a service. Well, who's going to compensate you for that? So, you know, there are a lot of compensation factors that go into assessing this kind of a claim. And this you can't simply put into a calculator. That's why why it doesn't exist. You got it, because it's very case-specific. Right. Exactly. And, and, you know, I've I've been saying this uh, before, but, you know, I used to work for insurance companies. I was, uh, by training, a defense lawyer. 
and I would often resolve claims favorably for the insurance company. In other words, the insurance company would authorize me to pay a lot less for the claim than the claim is actually worth because the plaintiff's lawyer, the lawyer representing the injured mm-hmm. party, would not realize that they can compensate for X, Y. They only, they, they only ask for Z. Really? You know? So very, very important to understand that when you have an injury claim or a disability claim, there, there are various components to that claim. It's not difficult, but it's very technical. And you want to make sure that if you have a lawyer uh, that's representing you, that they really understand your case, the nuances of what you've lost as a result of your injury. 416-216-5910, help at the insurance lawyer.ca. i got a couple minutes left before we got a break. I'll give you a, a question. came in on an email from George in Ottawa. says, I was in a bad car accident about a year ago. I broke three ribs and dislocated my right shoulder. I've been back to work full time. I've gone to a couple of lawyers around here, but each of them were pressing me to sign with them. And I didn't like it, felt pressured. I heard your show a few times and was wondering if you do any work in Ottawa. So, so the, the answer, uh, George, is, is yes. We actually have an office there. We have, uh, we have a lawyer there that works there. Uh, but let me just go back to a few uh, key points in your email. Uh, number one, you're saying you're back at work full time. Again, going back on what we discussed before, what does that mean? Uh, you can be back to work full-time, but on modified hours. Right, or duties. Uh, or, or duties. And no. perhaps you're full-time, but perhaps you're not doing overtime hours. So I would want to speak with you a little bit more. But to the issue of you being pressured uh, to sign up with these lawyers, never ever sign anything on the spot, especially if you're feeling pressured. And that doesn't just go to lawyers. You know, if I'm dealing with a real estate agent and I feel that that real estate agent is really pressuring me, that's a huge turnoff. And unfortunately, in the legal profession, that's something that's very common. It's mm-hmm. common for a lawyer to say, you know, here's the dotted line. Don't worry about reading, you know, the five pages of the retainer agreement. Yeah, trust me. Just, just trust me. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that gets you into trouble. Yeah. I insist that my clients all uh, take a look at the, uh, the agreement that I'm presenting to them because we have to have one. Law Society dictates that if you hire me, we have to have a retainer agreement. But I want them to understand what their options are. And oftentimes I'll send them home and I'll say, I'm, not, I'm insisting you do not sign anything now. Yeah. And I know that sounds counterintuitive. But you know, John, I, that actually works in my favor. Oh, because it saves it builds, hassle down the line. First of all, it does that. Number two, it builds trust. Mm-hmm. right? And at the end of the day, we have a relationship. Any one of our lawyers at the firm, whether we do personal injury or disability or employment law, it's about trust. Do you trust me? Do you trust my team to get the most compensation for you and your, and, and your family members if you are injured in an accident? And, and if you don't, then you know what? I'm not the right lawyer for you. You know, it was a, a bad week last week for car accidents. This winter, surprisingly, you know, there's been very little snow and precipitation, but there's been a lot of car accidents out there. We'll get into that, uh, some of those discussions here in just a bit. In the meantime, the number to get a hold of Savan simple, 416-216-5910. And as always, an email is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. This is the Insurance and Injury Law Show right here on Talk Radio, AM 640. The Insurance and Injury Law Show, the number to get a hold of Savan anytime. It's his uh, personal number, 416 216 5910 and help at the insurance lawyer.ca. We mentioned getting into the uh, discussion of car accidents, so we'll uh, we'll get into it right now. For instance, if a uh, say a passenger is uh, in a car, gets injured, who compensates that person for their pain and suffering? The passenger we're talking about now. Right. And again, very important question because a lot of times people call me, they, they don't understand that when I'm asking questions, specific questions, I'm asking them because I'm analyzing two issues. Number one is liability. Who's at fault? If no one is at fault for your injuries then no one is going to be uh, on the hook for paying you pain and suffering. You may get other benefits, but not pain and suffering. Uh, And the second question is damages. What are your injuries and what flows from those injuries in terms of losses? So if you're a passenger in a car accident, generally speaking, the thought process is that you cannot be at fault for the accident, 
unless you did something uh, extreme, uh, like uh, you know, distract the, the driver by Put slapping your hand them. Of his eyes. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> if you're my kid, maybe. Yeah, right. uh, but but uh, you know, if you're a passenger, then uh, the people who are responsible are prote- presumably going to be either the driver of your vehicle, right? Uh, because presumably they did something wrong. If it was a one-person collision, for example, or if there was another car or other cars or someone else on the road that precipitated the created conditions right. that led to this collision, they would be on the hook. But you as a passenger, you would not have any liability. You would not be deemed to be at fault unless it can be proven that you really did something extreme here. Like you said, you know, like uh, covering the driver's eyes for whatever mm-hmm. reason. So last week there was uh, a car, I believe six or seven people were ejected out of the car. And I, I'm assuming, you can almost assume that maybe at least... If not all those, a few of those were not wearing seatbelts. So if you're the driver of the car, you get into a bad accident, your passengers get ejected, they were not wearing seatbelts, who's at fault? Who gets covered? Fantastic question. And and uh, you're talking about the accident that happened on the 403. Yeah. Uh, terrible, terrible accident. I was talking with a few people about that. Um, so other than, than the fact that if you don't wear a seatbelt, uh, you know, I'll be extreme here, John, uh, you're an idiot. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it, it's I can't, I can't even tell you how many times I've seen accidents, both on the defense side and on the plaintiff side, where if you wear a seatbelt, there's no question you would have either have lived or not have been injured as you had been because you were ejected. Mm-hmm. So because of that, incidentally, our courts uh, in these kinds of cases have attributed what's called contributory negligence on the person that was ejected. So we're driving together, John. I'm driving. You're a passenger. You're not wearing a seatbelt. I do something wrong. I caused the accident, you're ejected from the car, and you are injured in a catastrophic way. Let's say your damages, right, the compensation you're entitled to is a million bucks between your income loss, pain and suffering, and everything, okay? If the evidence comes out that you were not wearing your seatbelt at the time, the court could deduct uh, as much as 25% from your damages. So instead of getting a million bucks, you're going to get $750,000, and again, the courts have said it repeatedly, and, and you know they're, they're preaching to the choir because really everyone knows if you don't wear your seatbelt, there's a higher chance you're going to get injured. But there are civil ramifications for that if you are starting a claim for compensation and, and uh, it's shown later on that you were not wearing a seatbelt. So even though you're not at fault for the accident, you are contributorily negligent or contributorily at fault for the aggravation or the extent of your injuries. And that gets factored in when we're looking at compensation. Does the driver get pinched for not uh, making sure, at least demanding everybody had a seatbelt or their adults, it's up to their own? They may may be, and you you often see that happen in situations uh, where you're dealing with children who uh, are now wearing seatbelts or not properly harnessed. Uh, It's a complicated question, and there's been a lot of legal cases that have dealt with that. You know, somebody else was responsible for the accident and the kid uh, was ejected from the car or injured uh, severely, catastrophically. Sometimes there is a fatality. Who is at fault and to what extent do you go after the parents for failing to supervise? It's really case-specific, really, really case-specific. But certainly, I mean, you can make the argument that the driver had an obligation. But if you're an adult and you haven't worn your seat, you weren't wearing your seatbelt, and I'm the driver, I'm going to be deemed at fault for the accident anyways Mm -hmm. if I caused the accident. So the issue with the seatbelt, because you're an adult, is going to end up dinging you when it comes time to talk settlement between you and my insurance company. Wow. So what if there's more than one person at fault? Uh, where do the claims begin? Again, very interesting and very important because, and again, I, I go back to uh, my time as a defense lawyer working for insurance companies where many times lawyers representing injured people uh, would not uh, claim against all of the parties. And why is that important? Because 
if there are two people equally responsible for an accident and I've claimed against one, I may be missing out as against the other individual. Not to mention the fact that once it comes out through the claims process that there's someone else at fault, it ends up prolonging the process. And that's okay. why I hear a lot of times about uh, these, these kinds of claims taking years and years and years when they really should not be taking years and years and years to resolve. But uh, there is a principle in law called joint and several liability. So let's take an example. We're driving in the car, John. You're a passenger. I'm a driver. Uh, I, I'm making uh, a, a left-hand turn, and I, I hit a car that's coming in the opposite direction. Let's say that we go through the claims process, and it's deemed that I am at fault uh, 50%, and the other side is at fault 50%. You should be claiming as against both of us, uh, oh, as against bo- uh, both of us. And, 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 and really what happens at the end of the day is that uh, you're entitled under this joint and several liability rule to claim all of your compensation, either from both of us or from one of us. But the point is you want to be able to name all of the relevant parties, okay? So very important people to understand that uh, when you are involved in an accident, whatever that accident is, and I see this a lot in slip and fall cases where, you know, I slipped and fell on a parking lot for the small, I think, well, the mall is responsible. Well, wait a second. What if the mall hired a contractor who didn't do their job to clear the snow and ice? What if that contractor hired a subcontractor? And it goes on and on and on. And again, very, very important to make sure that all the parties are there. You as the individual coming from, to me for a consultation, you're not going to know all of this. This is where you need someone who deals with this on a day-to-day basis, right. someone who has done this on both the defense side and the plaintiff side, so we, we understand uh, you know, the completeness of the case and make sure that nothing is overlooked. 416-216-5910. That is the number anytime to get a hold of Savannah. Use it, write it down, keep it in your pocket. Help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. We'll get to some more emails after a quick break. The Insurance and Injury Law Show on Talk Radio AM 640. The Insurance and Injury Law Show, Talk Radio AM 640. Savannah's number is 416-216-5910. And help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. We're having a discussion about uh, car accidents. Now, you've mentioned, I don't know if this is a, a scenario where this would come into play, but I'm in a car, we're both driving, you're driving, uh, we get into an accident, uh, maybe 50% your fault, maybe not. I'm injured, but I, I also have an insurance policy because I'm a driver. I'm not in my car, I'm in yours. Does that ever come into play, my own policy? Uh, yes, it can certainly come into play. But, you know, generally speaking, if you are, if you are making a claim for compensation, uh, the compensation is going to be as against the, the insurance company of, of the car you are in. So what if, if you're I'm the not driver, insured? If I'm not insured? Yes. If I'm not insured then, and you have your own insurance, yes. then yes, you can, uh-huh. cl- you can claim uh, under a certain provision in your policy as against your insurance company. And we talked about that before. People oftentimes are in a car accident uh, that's caused by someone who either is uninsured or underinsured mm-hmm. or perhaps it's a hit and run. We have, we have a, a safety mechanism here in Ontario that if you have your own insurance, uh, auto insurance, and you're injured in a scenario like that, you can go to your own insurance company asking for that compensation, and it could be substantial. And again, in the situations where, for example, let's say you have uh, a, somebody who is in a car who hits a pedestrian, and that person in the car drives away, so it's he or she's unidentified. Right. And that person uh, who, who was um, a pedestrian uh, does not have insurance, then we have uh, the Motor Vehicle Accident Fund that you can access, which is a special fund set up by the government uh, that people in those situations can can access. So very important to understand that there are a lot of legal issues and technical issues, but, but certainly if somebody is uninsured, underinsured, or it's a hit and run, and you were injured in that scenario, uh, you will have recourse so it's very, very important, and there are very strict time limitations uh, for pursuing that. Help at the insurance lawyer.ca is the email. We'll get to one from Sherry. 
Writes in from Bracebridge, says, I fell on black ice two weeks ago at a school parking lot and tore my right shoulder. I'm a dental hygienist and will likely be off work for quite a while. I notified the school and the person I talked to asked if there were any witnesses. I think there were, but I don't have their names. Does that mean I have zero case, no case? No, no, it's no, absolutely not. It's always nice to have witnesses, but uh, often... And photos. And photos, mm-hmm. exactly. And so, But oftentimes people don't have it for whatever reason. Uh, they, they don't have either there were witnesses but you weren't able to get their names and numbers uh, you are clearly occupied uh, Sherry with your injury I mean having a torn shoulder is a serious serious injury uh, you know something to be learned here John is, is that if you're injured in a slip and fall or a trip and fall or one of those kinds of falls uh, if you can take pictures or have someone go to the site as soon as possible to take photographs with your phone just to show what it is that caused it. Look, if, if, if you slipped on black ice, for example, or, or uh, uh, a, a snowbank or, or whatever it is, and uh, you, know, you ask your husband or your daughter or your son or whoever to go there a week later when the winter conditions are completely different, those photographs will be useless. No kidding. But if you can go the same day or maximum the next day, uh, then you know, it, it's better than nothing. The sooner you take photos of that area, the better it is. Number two, make sure you get medical help as soon as possible. And oftentimes, John, I see people who end up going home because they think, oh, you know, it's just a a bruise or a sprain. The injury doesn't go away. They end up going and getting imaging, uh, x-ray, ultrasound, whatever, a week later, two weeks later, and it shows either a tear or a chip or, or whatnot. Very, very important to get checked out. And the number three thing that I would say is uh, you, you want to notify the owner of the property in writing as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, when we're dealing with municipalities like the city, you have to notify them within 10, ten days. Within right? 10 yeah. days, the city clerk. you got to tell them in writing what happened, where it happened. And if you don't have that, you could potentially be barred from bringing a claim against them down the road. Sam from Toronto writes in another email. And again, uh, help at the insurancelawyer.ca says, I've been on long-term disability for over a year because of depression and anxiety. The insurance adjuster I've been dealing with has been stressing me out uh, every time he calls. He says that I shouldn't be off work and that my doctor is not doing enough to help me. I don't know what to do. I'm scared of picking up the phone or answering his letters. It's just making things worse. I don't know what to do. What can I do? Well, I find it interesting, Sam, that um, this this adjuster says that uh, your doctor is not doing enough to help you. I mean, unless that adjuster is a doctor himself uh, or, or has uh, some background in medicine, for him to make that opinion is completely improper. In mm-hmm. fact, it would be improper anyways because his job is not to assess whether the doctor is doing his job or not. Right. His job is only to assess whether or not you qualify uh, for, for disability payments under the policy of insurance that you have. And, and, you know, John, we've talked about this before. I've told you about other cases off air that I have. One of the biggest benefits that people uh, gain from from coming to me and having my team represent them is that they don't have to deal with these adjusters anymore. We are the ones dealing with them. We are the ones who are going to call the adjuster. So let the adjuster stress because if they don't do their job, they can be reprimanded from their manager, by their managers and, and supervisors. So, so Sam, just give me a call. Uh, we'll have a chat. I'll, I'll explain to you all your options. I'll, I'll go through the facts of your case, explain to you exactly what it is that you should be concerned about or should not be concerned about. And generally speaking, John, when, when people understand what their options are, they feel empowered, mm-hmm. right? Knowledge is power. It really goes a long way here because... The, the, the field is, is, is uneven here. I mean, the insurance company, these adjusters, that's what they do for a living. Whereas you as the person who is on disability, you're vulnerable. You're fighting your illness. You're fighting your disease. You're fighting your injury. You're trying to get better. 
And at the same time, you get the stress, this immense stress, this anxiety that is created just by communicating with the very person who's supposed to be from the company that's supposed to help you. I mean, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but that's the reality. That's the system that we have that we work with. So oftentimes people have us uh, represent them. You know, the, the mere fact that we are now dealing with the insurance adjuster, that in itself is just relief. It's huge relief. Yeah. Huge, huge. I mean, you just hear it. You know, you, you, they walk differently from my office, mm-hmm. very differently than, than the way they come in. And you should mention as well that uh, beyond the disability uh, portion that you would take care of, if like Sam here, it happens to be a, a conflict with the workplace, you also have Lior on the employment side, that's right? right? That's right. And that happens a lot. I mean, a lot of em- employers often uh, don't understand what, what their obligations are to their employees. And you're right. We have a lot of employment lawyers and, and oftentimes we work in tandem mm-hmm. to make sure that the individual that we're helping, you know, we're helping them from, from every side, from the employment side, from the disability side, if there's an injury from the injury side. It's sort of a one-stop shop, so to speak. We'll get to some long-term disability questions because it's always a gray area when people talk about it, or at least their knowledge of it anyway. In the meantime, the number 416-216-5910. That's the van's direct number, and the email is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. This is the Insurance Injury Law Show, Talk Radio, AM 640. The Insurance and Injury Law Show, indeed. The number is 416-216-5910, and help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. We'll get to another couple emails here before the... Wrap the show for this uh, this week. I want to get into long-term disability and some questions. Uh, when someone's cut off long-term and you start a claim for them, what does, uh, what does that actually mean? Well, it, it can mean a variety of things, but generally speaking, it means that we create a document uh, that, that, that is a claim. It's a statement of claim. It's an, it's an official document that sets out exactly what it is that we are demanding that the insurance do under the law. And, and, and it basically uh, talks about the background of your case, about you and about the fact that um, you know your disability arose as a result of X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. and here's how you've been treated. So it provides context for the relief that you are asking for. This is the legal speak for what we're doing. We're asking for relief so that if this ever ended up before a judge or a court, which again, almost none of these cases ever get to that point. Because that costs money. It costs money. Yeah. And also insurance companies understand that at the end of the day, if there is legitimate a legitimate reason for the person to be on disability and the doctors that are treating them, the various health practitioners that are treating them are supporting the person being off work, they're not going to stand a chance when they go to court. So that's why these cases often resolve. But, but what it means is that we start this statement of claim that contains certain language and demands certain things from the insurance company. And why does the insurance company have to react? Because it's the law. Because once we file that, they then have to engage their own lawyers to respond to it. So they hire lawyers, very much like myself, the way I used to be hired by insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And those lawyers assess the case. And then there is discussions between me and the lawyers. I make recommendations to my clients. They make recommendations to their clients. And guess what? Oftentimes, most times, we come to a resolution early on. Pretty murky waters, though. How do you know what to claim for? Well, it, 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 so, so for that, that, you're right. It's murky waters, but you have to look at the policy. I mean, really, you're dealing with a contract. Uh, you are getting payments for disability under an insurance policy. And, and that policy is a contract. So therefore, you're looking at the contracts to see what does the contract provide and generally speaking, when we're looking at long-term disability, uh, we are looking at language that talks about, well, how much are you entitled to from the insurance company? What is the criteria for you to be able to get that from the insurance company? What do you have to prove? And any other provisions. So if I were to boil everything down, and I'll give it to you in, in sort of legal speak, it would be a declaration of coverage. Mm-hmm. I am asking 
for a declaration from a court, assuming this ever went to court, which again, they often don't, uh, most of the time they don't, I'm asking a court to declare that the insurance company must cover this individual for their disability payments. And so what we're claiming for really is retroactive pay to the date that the person was cut off, as well as a reinstatement to be put back on benefits. What happens at settlement is different because you may very well be settling the entire claim, you know, past benefits owing, as well as a portion of the future benefits that will be owed. But what you're claiming for is a declaration. You want the court to declare that the insurance company has to pay you retroactively what you're owed, as well as uh, put you back on, on the benefits, on these monthly benefits. Once you start a claim, what's the likely outcome? Well, I, I'm not going to take a claim uh, unless I think that the in, right. that the person has a case. It's just it's that simple. I mean, it would be bad business for me, and frankly, I would get no referrals from other people. And frankly, a lot of the people that come to me come to me because I've helped their friends or their family members. It's a lot of word of mouth, uh, and that's how it works in general with our firm. And 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 so in in, in you know when we're dealing with disability type cases, the likely outcomes, uh, and I would tell you. With certainty, that's about 99.9% of the time is mm-hmm. there is a resolution. And a resolution means a settlement. Uh, and, and again, the client is aware of everything throughout the entire process. I'm not allowed to resolve the claim unless my client says, go ahead and do it. Here's how much I'm getting in my pocket. Here is how much uh, uh, you know I'm giving away or I'm foregoing by resolving the claim right now. So very important to understand that when I tell you that 99.9% of these cases settle, it's because my client authorized me to settle, okay? It's not me saying, okay, well, I just want to settle the case. So what does that tell you? It tells you the clients are happy with the settlement mm-hmm. because they've authorized the settlement. How long is the process? Uh, the process can be anywhere from uh, a few weeks. Uh, that's more extreme. That's when I can get the insurance company to really reverse their position. Uh, it's happened to me actually recently where they cut the person off. I got involved very, very quickly. And they actually, uh, because I was able to provide some urgent uh, letters from the various physicians that were treating the person, the insurance company really reversed their position and, and, and reinstated the person early on. Uh, but oftentimes it takes a few months, uh, whether it's uh, three months, six months, eight months, depends on my interaction with the other side. There's only so much that I can do on my end. We work very, very quickly at the office, but you know we are dependent on, on the reaction of the insurance company once we start the claims process. I'll give you a quick, uh, quick email here. You got about, uh, what, two minutes to answer it, so I know you'll rip through it quickly. Sylvia from Scarborough writes in, says, my husband applied for long-term disability as a result of a uh, cognitive slash mental disability, but his treating neurologist is having a tough time providing a definitive diagnosis. The neurologist confirmed that he can't work, but the insurance company is pressing for a diagnosis and says that unless there is one, they'll not approve him. What do they do? Uh, Sylvia, actually, I'm dealing with a case right now, uh, a very, very similar case to what you're describing. Uh, and, you know, in, in this kind of a case, what I would do is I would go to the policy and I would say, well, again, what is the criteria? And generally speaking, the criteria is not for a diagnosis to be provided. The criteria generally is, uh, you know, do we have sufficient medical documentation to show that this individual is disabled from doing their job or doing any mm. job for which they're suited for by training, education, or experience? So the lack of a diagnosis does not mean uh, that the person is not impaired objectively, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that the neurologist is not saying, as, as the neurologist is saying here, that the person is able to go back to work. Right. I mean, listen, medicine is limited. The fact that it's limited should not bar you from pursuing this claim.
We'll take a, a quick break. We'll get to another email and touch on slip and fall in our last few minutes here of the show. It is 416-216-5910. That's the van's direct number. And help at theinsurancelawyer.ca through email. This is the Insurance and Injury Law Show. Talk radio, AM 640. You need to get a hold of Savan outside of show hours. Very simple. 416-216-5910. And as always, the email is help at theinsurancelawyer.ca. Let's touch on a little slip and fall, even though it uh, hasn't been very icy this year. It does happen. If someone uh, slips and falls, get injured, are they automatically entitled to compensation? No. Nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Easy answer, right, John? Yeah. Done. And, and you know, we, we live in a culture, unfortunately, where people think that if they're injured, they're automatically entitled to compensation. And again, that's why we started the show by by me saying that it depends on whether someone is at fault for this. And, and you know, not not when you have an accident, sometimes it's just an accident. It just happens. And I know, you know, a lot of the defense lawyers who are listening right now would be uh, uh, cheering uh, when I say this. But, but, you know, oftentimes it does happen that, uh, you know, you do fall for whatever reason. Your, your leg gave out. Something happened, mm-hmm. but it's no one's fault. So it's very important for people to understand that if they do suffer an injury as a result of a slip and fall or a trip and fall, they need to consult with someone who deals with this on a day-to-day basis. That's why I tell people, give me a call, email me. I get a lot of emails, John. Sometimes people just don't want to pick up the phone. So yep. email me. And, and you know, I've told people, don't email me at 5 in the morning because you'll get an email back at 5.01. Uh, we're, we're, we're very quick. And I'll probably ask you for some more details. And I will assess whether or not there is potential liability on whoever was responsible for that area. And whether that is a store, whether that's a city sidewalk, whether it's a parking lot, whatnot. If you fall uh, as a result of, of ice or something obstructing you or a height differentiation, right. you know, s- sidewalk, sidewalk slaps, yeah. you know, the law doesn't say that the person who owns or maintains the area has to be perfect. Okay, we have a reasonableness standard. And that's rooted within legislation that uh, lawyers such as myself are very, very aware of, it's it's the Occupier's Liability Act. Okay, So if people were to go on Google, type in Occupier's Liability Act, Section 3, it specifically states that an occupier, whoever owns or controls mm-hmm. an area, has to make sure that that area is reasonably maintained for the safety of people who come on it. And, and that's what we're looking at. I'm looking to see if, in fact, it was reasonably maintained. So if you slip and fall on a, on a parking lot, and there was this w- one piece of, of ice that was one centimeter by one centimeter. And there is a ton of sand and a ton of salt everywhere. Well, John, this is winter. It is Canada. You're probably not going to be able to establish liability right. against the landlord because they did their job. But if you're dealing with an area where it's just not maintained, clearly they did not put salt until after you reported your incident. Clearly there is, uh, you know, tons of, of ice everywhere or, or, you know, you're in a store and it's completely messy. Okay. And, and, you know, when they create this kind of a hazard, they're going to be at fault. And it's going to be their insurance companies that I'm going to be dealing with to get you the compensation that you deserve. It's that simple. How quickly can you start a claim for slip and fall? You can start very, very quickly, uh, you know, within a matter of days. And oftentimes when I'm dealing with more serious cases, whether it's a hip fracture or a tear or things like that, we're on it really quickly. At the very least, we send an email out or a letter to the um, owner of the premises, whether it's the store or whoever it is, uh, asking them to get their insurance company to get in touch with me ASAP. Because I'm going to want to know if there are any other parties that are responsible. I have a gentleman that I'm dealing with right now uh, that 
fell uh, in, in, a, in, in a pub, uh, actually, I'm not going to mention any names, in Richmond Hill, and, and this was in December, and this, this poor man fractured his L1 in his back. Ooh. He's going to be undergoing through surgery Brutal. now. And, and guess what? Uh, he, he slipped and fell because the carpet or the mat that he fell on was not adequate. It wasn't a winter mat. And so now I've asked for uh, uh, clarification and identification of the company that's supplying this, uh, mm-hmm. this, this pub with these mats. So again, very, very important to understand who all the parties are. Uh, and, and certainly if you have any questions, you've been injured in a scenario like this, just give me a call. Within a few minutes, I'll be able to tell you if you have a case or not. We'll get to Don from Toronto, writes in through email at helpintheinsurancelawyer.ca. says, my wife fell, there you go, fell in a parking lot, uh, a mall about, uh, about a weekend ago. We were visiting. Uh, very icy. She broke her ankle and is in a cast. My concern is that she works at a restaurant as a waitress. This is almost like what you were just talking about. And won't be able to return to work for a while. Does she have a claim? Is it complicated to start? First go. of all, it's not complicated to start because all you're going to do is, is uh, just get in touch with me after the show. Just send me an email or, or give me a call. And I'm going to ask you some more questions. I'm going to ask you, uh, number one thing I'm going to ask you with respect to liability or fault is I want to know, did you take photographs? Did anyone take photographs? I mean, your wife clearly had a severe injury here, so I'm not expecting her to start shooting pictures. But did anybody take any photographs? Uh, Was the landlord uh, um, notified of this? You know, very important when these kinds of things happen that you reach out to an injury lawyer very, very quickly. And the reason is because I may be able to give you some tips or advice on how to proceed, even if you don't end up retaining me, want to go with someone else, want to do it by yourself, whatnot. At the very least, get this information. So, so Don, get in touch with me. It's not complicated to start. Uh, we're not going to start anything before you have all your options, you and your wife, and we can talk about it, and then you can decide how you guys want to proceed. But she does have a claim from the way it sounds. If you're saying it was very icy, I, I'm inferring from that that there was a lot of ice everywhere. The question is... What was the maintenance like? Mm-hmm. Who maintained it? Did they maintain it the way they should have? Was it a sudden storm that suddenly you know, swept by and, and the, the, whoever was maintaining the area just wasn't able to get there in time? Again, very, very important questions. And as soon as I have this information, I can provide you with the options. And that's what it comes down to. You need the options. You need to know what your options are. And then you can talk to your wife and decide how you want to proceed. Got about a minute left. Just recap the injury calculator for us. Injury Calculator online tool, very, very useful, has been used a lot. Uh, I've been getting a lot of submissions from people, and it's important to understand that tool allows you to uh, have an idea of how much compensation for pain and suffering you may be entitled to if you're injured as a result of someone else's negligence. It's anonymous. Unless you click that button there that says that you're going to be reaching out to me, I will never know that you even went to that calculator, right. that you inputted information. So if you're just interested, if you just, you know, just because you have nothing to do or someone you know was injured and you are interested to know well, what kind of compensation they're looking at, just go to that website and, uh, you know, within 30 seconds, you'll, you'll have an idea. Injurycalculator.ca is that website. Until next week, we'll, uh, we'll take it from there. The number 416-216-5910. That is Savannah's personal number. And you want to email as well after the show. It is help at the insurance lawyer.ca. This has been the Insurance and Injury Law Show. Talk radio, AM640.